insight into instruction, combining and cultivating conversations between instructors and students. Welcome to Triple I Insights into Instruction. My name is Jamie. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Fabulous. But you can call me Thomas. This week we covered Planning Meaningful Instruction for ELLs, Chapter 4 Writing and Teaching to Learning Objectives by Joy Egbert and our English language learning professor, Gisela Ernst Slavit. We also covered Understanding by Design, Chapter 1, What is Backward Design, by Grant Wiggins and Jay McTighe. This week, though there was no assignment prompt, we were asked to zoom in on whatever aspect or aspects of the text were most interesting, confusing, and or surprising to us, and to make direct references to the reading as well as to our own experiences. Chapter 4 of Planning Meaningful Instruction for English Language Learners provides instruction on how to create very precise objectives and targeted goals. These goals need to start with the students will be able to, then ask to state the concrete measurable outcome, and finally, the exact content that will be learned. This has to include what degree the goal should be mastered, then wraps up the goal with the content that needs to be learned. Lastly, our wonderful author talks about how teachers can implement the teaching required to meet this goal slash objective. In the book, Planning Meaningful Instruction for ELLs, the first question was, how are you or will you be a language teacher? Think about the ways you and your students use or will be required to use language in your classroom. What do these uses mean for your teaching? For this one, basically as a teacher, I'm always going to be a language teacher because I'm speaking a language. I mean, I know that sounds simplistic, but they're going to be looking at me to model not only academic language, but social language. Mm -hmm. And then also there's the providing the curriculum. So that's going to have academic language in it. And I'm going to have to explain that. Also, it's something that they need to identify with. In order to keep their interest, I need to make sure that I'm being aware of what the students are interested in, where they're coming from, and that in turn is going to help me with the language that I need to provide to them, whether it be academic or social. And then integrating that language within the curriculum and the lesson is really what I got out of that in a simplistic way. When I was thinking about it, I thought about, as you stated, talking about always talking and always using language when I was teaching preschool and this is, will still be applicable to kindergarten, constantly verbalizing everything I'm doing to the point where my jaw hurts by the end of the day. But then also making sure that our language is precise. We're not using a lot of extra language that may come with English language, um, like um, for example, that I just said. So using very precise language with them and then using language in the classroom, like labeling things and having things, they can physically see the language, not only as I'm talking it, but it's also written so they can get more of the connection. Because like if we were talking about Isla's class last week, she had those examples where she spoke in Spanish and then she had those examples where she just spoke in Spanish, one she had visuals and then she had the written language. And I could, I don't speak any Spanish at all, I was able to gain more about seeing her language in the written text as well as hearing her and making those connections of like, what can I pull from this that's meaningful to me and I can connect it in the way I think. 
spelling too yes. because a word can be spelled similarly but not sound, sound. the same way mm-hmm. when you're speaking another language. So when you lattice all those together is how I'll be using language in a classroom. Lattice. Lattice. <laughs> Something that popped out to me about this too when it was how are you or will you be a language teacher was obviously yes every teacher is going to be a language teacher but my brain went right to the middle level math endorsement because we've actually discussed a lot about how language in math is what's created roadblocks and barriers for students in the past. And I would even say some of us in the program right now, myself included, we can explain mathematical concepts in layman's terms, but having the correct academic knowledge for it and the correct verbiage is what's going to be more complicated to get. And I think that's also very important to instill and not just assume that kids are done being language learners at the elementary level because you're going to have language learners with that academic content forever. Well, and going off of that math explanation, the fact is that we have a lot of problems in math that are word problems with a number thrown in there. Mm -hmm. And so being able to read in the first place in English is going to create this roadblock for them because they won't even be able to do the math Mm -hmm. without having the English. Or identifying the verbs that are asking what they're wanting them to do because a lot of those word problems are created to be tricky in that it's supposed to create critical thinking but I feel like if you can't even get to that point of understanding what it's asking you're not going to be able to grow as a math student you're just going to be stuck in a shut down mindset as you can't understand different things. If you don't understand the words you can't critically think about them. Exactly. Correct yeah. Another thing that popped out to me yet again in some of our classes, because that's what I was thinking about during this, was in our first one or two sessions with Shamim this fall, we went over identifying and making language clear regarding specific terms, such as what is white privilege, what is racism, what are these different things. And as we've discussed before, I think that was very important because although we might know what each of those words mean separately, we might not understand them in context or there might be misinterpretations of it. So in that way, language is important even in adult conversations. Well, and including how do you understand those words socially versus academically? Yes. There is a big difference sometimes because when you hear that spoken in everyday conversation, they might not be using it in an academic way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For example, the opening phrase, what's up? We're never going to write that. Yeah. (laughs) But... People say it all the time. And you can take that literally. What is up? The what sky, is up? the ceiling and versus most people slang. Short. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what you were talking about before, being very precise, precise with your language, not wanting to go into a lot of slang and things that people may not understand because we are teachers, so we should be professional. There is a lot of social language that we'll be using, but use it in a way that isn't slang. For us, that is, but mm-hmm. we also have to bring in the culture from the students. So sometimes that is part of their culture is those, sl- those slang things and mm-hmm. right, things that are uh, different dialects. But as a teacher, we should try to be as precise with our language as possible and yes. as clear with our language as possible, but still being us at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's a very fun balancing act. Fine line. Mm-hmm. Question two, choosing modes. Think about a lesson you have observed or taught. How can you include more modes so that students are exposed to language in a variety of ways? 
So the lesson that came to my mind for this question was one I observed in a kindergarten classroom where they were preparing to do a play. It was actually ran by the music teacher and it was a partnership with the gen ed teachers and all the different grades had varying stories or fables and they were going to perform them. They integrated this into English and reading by having them be in small groups and have different roles and practice their parts. I was only there for a day or two so I saw them do that and then also integrate it into art and collaborative work where they were creating the backdrops. And so a lot of this was really English centric, but it was also very student led, which was something that I was surprised to see in such a young classroom. But that was also just because I hadn't been exposed to as many younger classrooms at the time. So because I was only there for a few days, I'm not sure some of my suggestions I'm about to say were actually used or not, but I have a feeling they were. She was an excellent teacher. I just happened to maybe have been there on days where it was limited in the modes of linguistics. I think it could have been better designed by including a bilingual script because I think they should also have the opportunity to learn the plot and the characters before they also have to conquer the English context of it. And we've talked about previously in this article that Gisela wrote about teaching content in parallel with teaching language. And so sometimes you have to have scaffolding of language. It can't all just be the content in English and hoping that your language lessons catch up. So that was something I thought of. I also thought of perhaps integrating language into the art or having visuals on that backdrop in a different language because then viewers might be able to pick up on more of the plot if they didn't know the language that it was being performed in. That was just another side thought of mine. And then working with the script from an audio sense as well, maybe being able to practice by themselves or listening to a recording because there were some shyer kids I knew they were being more reserved and maybe not getting their full potential out of the assignment because it was all small group versus if they had time to practice privately, they might be more confident. Well, thinking about that in the next section about starting at the goal, providing something in multiple languages is hard, especially when you don't know the language. So what ways can we work around that? They could have chose a play that was in a visual book so that those students who are English language learners can refer to the images. I know we could you could send it to a translator and see if they could transcribe it into, into a language that they can understand. I also am realistic about the resources that yes. teachers have and trying to work around that. The paper boat is, it's written, well, it's all drawings. The way that the drawings are presented are more like a graphic novel, but there's no words. And I feel like something like that could be taken and performed because they see it and they see the story, but it doesn't necessarily have written word. And then potentially you could ask them to utilize certain keywords and present that in some sort of way, or when they're explaining it, you could say, what did you get from this book? Because it's all visual. And then that in turn makes them explain it to you. You provide them with a list of keywords and they can bring that into their own conversation even. And I actually went to math when I was thinking mm -hmm. about it, whereas the last one you went to math. When I was teaching, we were required to do math every morning for a certain amount of time. And the previous teacher before I took over for her would literally hand them a worksheet that was just this plus this equals this and fill in the blank. And I felt like that just was... First of all, there was only two, so it was the same questions over and over again. So you would have them memorized. Yeah. You know, you, you're not even learning anymore. If you're taking that, and let's say you do have to use those same questions again, because that's the resource you have, although you could just make them up, you could turn that into a word question and try to make those students read that and pull out the information from that in order to get back to the original question. They may not know that that's the original question, but they have to pull the information from that and they really have to read it and 
and understand it before they can create their own math question. And of course you can work with them and explain things to them, but I think that's a better use of math, having it visual, having it words, and then you can also represent it with drawings or mm -hmm. use magnets or use the math cubes or whatever it may be to have that visual and have different colors and different shapes or just draw it. Definitely. So there's so many ways that you can do it that isn't just a math worksheet. Yes. It has a number plus a number equals a blank. So and that's also kind of writing those in languages that they understand mm -hmm. or not, I want to say languages, but words that they've gained in English to their understanding. Mm -hmm. um, that would be really awesome. Having very focused questions. The way I saw it was a little bit younger for preschool is that they had everything labeled first. And then they, they always started out very small and they worked their way up, but we started learning both. So we were learning colors in English and then we learned them in Spanish. And I had one time we had this little Japanese boy and we had to learn it in Japanese. And I've never spoken this lick of Japanese besides the stuff I watch on anime. And we had to learn it. And it was an experience for us because this little three-year-old was able to correct me on how I was pronunciating his language. And he was so happy to do that. He was so excited that he was able to take control and be a teacher. Yeah, teach you. Teach me something. And I think if we can help navigate that and around them being their own drivers, their own person who does a ship or drives a ship. What's that called? Their own. Oh my gosh. We Voy can. Voyager? Captain. Like, their own cap <laughs> the captain. They can be the captain of their... There's their learning and their Conductor language. Conductor, the yes. And they are they're navigating and yes. making that pathway to be part of our the community of our classroom. Well, and I think that's something that is super useful for any language. You have someone in there and you you can ask them, how do you say this mm -hmm. for the whole class? Granted, <laughs> I have known that there are certain children who will tell you the wrong thing. Yes. I feel like that's sometimes just the older grades a little bit, but it, it could be you, younger You, you also too. learn your students. Right, right. right. And, and then, you can also look it up to make sure that that's truly what you're saying before you go around it, there, telling everybody. <laughs> there's a reason why I always ask these questions one-to-one, -one, because I'm always yes. like, okay, maybe I should look it up to make sure. Mm -hmm. Right. Just so that, but there, I had super young children and they were, they were just, they were lovely. Yeah. And I think it would be really fun to do an art project because I always just love to go to art projects. Mm -hmm. So if you were like, explaining, see this picture book, we're going to do our own picture book. It's just four pages. There's a beginning, a middle, and end. Mm -hmm. We've got one chunk for the beginning, two chunks for the middle, and one chunk for the end. And you get to write it one part, the part in English, as well as the part in your own language. Mm -hmm. And you get to present this in both languages. And how cool would that be? Because now you have something that you have a story, you wrote a story, you wrote it in two languages, and I would literally take all of those stories, make a photocopy of them, and create here's our short story book. Mm -hmm. Yes. With multiple languages in it. And those were the coolest things. Yeah, I loved doing that. When they create their own books, when I had preschoolers do it, they read more of their own books and each other's books than they read in the library that was in our, yep. in oh, our room. Because they were like, Oh, look at so-and-so's family or look at this house. Oh my goodness, such a tall house. And they would just have so much great yep. conversation about scribbles because at <laughs> three, they, they scribble. Yes. <laughs> That's why you always ask 
tell me about this drawing. Right. So you never, like, what is it? Because they, they may just say it's scribbles. So I'm like, okay. Yeah. I understand you. I get you. No, I think that that's one of the biggest things. I feel like art and music, when you integrate that into any any classroom, that's something that all of the children can understand. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when you're integrating that as well, you can utilize both of those in two different languages. Mm -hmm. That was one of the most amazing things in my first grade class was we might, I think we had the option to write it in whatever language we wanted. But we did community books type thing like we just discussed, but the teacher would keep them from previous years. So before we made ours, we got to read what other classes before us had done, and sometimes it would be siblings' work in those, and it was it was just really cool because it was in our library at the whole time. And you got to see two totally different mm -hmm. views of something that could be the same because yep. it's in the same household, but not the same person. Yep. Speaking of household, one thing we haven't talked about is the possibility of the families actually speaking English and writing English. Oh, yeah. So they could translate because sometimes mm -hmm. with bilingual families, they speak a, the language that's not English and they speak their home language, but they also know English and mm -hmm. speak English and write English, we could send stuff home for them to be able to translate for their child in that language. Mm -hmm. And then also we can provide both languages. That also all depends on if the family can and are willing. Right, and once COVID is over, you could also have them come in and read books in mm -hmm. their own native language, which is something that, I don't know why, but before I started teaching, I was like, there's no way that kids would just sit there listening to a book that they don't understand in a totally different language. No. They that love is it. so far from the truth. They, they are just it. so intrigued by the sounds and by everything. And they look at the pictures and they understand the story, even if they don't understand the language. Because books, even with different languages, are universal when they are illustrated. Mm -hmm. And then we're back to vabbing. And then we're back to art, too. <laughs> in the book, Understanding by Design, it goes into an in-depth dissection of the teaching method known as backward design. Backward design is a practice that starts at the end and works its way back to where we would typically begin. This involves teachers starting at a targeted goal or standard, which helps create the learning experiences and instruction. This chapter then discusses how to prioritize what the in-depth curricular information will be based on three questions. Is the information worth being familiar with? Is it important to know and do? And is it worth enduring, fully understanding? These three questions are the big picture of a design. What were your preconceived ideas on backward design? How did those change or get built upon after reading this article? What insight did you gain regarding application? When going in and reading this, I already had a background in education and a background of how already to write goals. And it was already something that we were taught to look at the goal itself and then build from where they are within that goal and build a lesson upon that goal. So this was really reaffirming what I've already learned, which was really great. I really enjoyed getting back to the roots. And then what was really an aha moment was the three questions. Is the information that you're teaching, is it worth fully knowing? Or is it worth just touching on? Or is it worth actually talking about it, doing something, but not fully understanding why? And something that I was when I was a kid is what we touched We touched on. We didn't really actually get to fully understand it. Martha Luther King Jr.'s birthday. We did this huge drawing about it. We talked about it. We talked about a speech, but we never really fully understood why. We never went into the deep 
depth why he was so famous. Yes, he made a huge speech. Yes, he did some marching, but why? And in the South where I was raised, we never got to the fully understanding aspect. And I think going with that when you're creating your goals and starting at the end and working right back, understanding if it's worth fully, like fully understanding. And I think this program that we're going through really focuses on the information that's actually important yeah. and f- worth fully understanding versus information that's good to touch on. Mm-hmm. Like those activities that we used to do in school that maybe we're just, we just touched on them and we moved on. But there are some things that we should really get to fully understand because that will help us fully become critical thinkers and be able to question why. Your MLK Day example gave me such a flashback, not when I was in first grade, but when I was in elementary school and I saw what the first graders were doing. They were supposed to color in a picture of Martin Luther King, and then they were supposed to write something about the meaning of his speech, right? The teacher didn't explain, obviously, well enough that Martin Luther King Jr. was a black man. And so we had white colorings of MLK on the walls and that was really backwards but i didn't think about it at the time but yeah there was these pictures martin luther king jr as a white man whitewashing <laughs> yeah accidentally, accidentally. Yes. yeah it wasn't elaborated didn't... enough yeah talk about not going far enough in depth to bring it back to backward design though my major preconceived notion was that backward design, if it was starting at the end, which is usually, in my experience, a test, that it would be too much of a heavy focus on traditional assessments. That's what I was worried about, is it would become far too performance-oriented. Mm-hmm. And that was the biggest misconception, because as we learned very quickly, formal testing is not the major goal of this. It's application and stuff that's further than that. And although testing is a part, it was not as essential as I originally thought it would be in backward design. So that was probably my biggest aha and preconceived idea that got changed. I really like how it stated that the goal was really where we started Mm -hmm. and we created everything around that goal. We created the curriculum based on that and then you create the assessment based on the goal. So it really started with a well precise defined goal. Yes, for sure. Or targeted, yeah, targeted goal. My preconceived was starting at the finished product. But then from that finished product, taking it apart bit by bit until you get to the beginning, which I think is where my perception changed. That was just very unorganized. (laughs) So this gave me a more in-depth understanding of what I originally thought and how to get that more focused. So how to do that in a more focused way, utilizing those three steps. And that that super helped me just seeing this, this, and this, and how I could tailor that sort of like our brainstorming, how all of those were interconnected and how you could go from step to step to step. Obviously utilizing those three steps to focus on your desired results, your determining the acceptable evidence, because it's not everything about a subject needs to be compressed into a 30 minute lesson. Yes. yes. You need to prioritize that. And finally, just utilizing the prior knowledge and the information to plan said lesson is much easier than saying, okay, I'm starting at this. How do I get to this? It's easier to say, this is my final goal. This is where I want to be. And how do I achieve that from that? I feel like if you're starting with nothing, how do you get to something? You have to have that goal in mind, just like Mm -hmm. you have a destination. What's your destination in mind? And how are you going to make that destination a reality? Teaching metaphor. Yes. I swear that was my teaching metaphor. Yeah. Is literally 
creating a tapestry while well, your weaver knows this is what I want at the end. Mm-hmm. Now I have to work backwards and how am I going to get to that? I need to choose my yarn. I need to choose mm-hmm. this. I need what to tools choose this. am I going to be using? What, right. How is the loom going to be? How long is the loom going to be? And how wide is it going to be? And all of the different aspects of that. Right. And, yeah. And I would imagine that if students were aware of that goal at the start of it too, it would create this teamwork mindset instead of oh we just have to do this to get to something eventually having that end goal in mind might create a more productive and willing classroom and i really liked how it had the continuum of assessment methods like Mm -hmm. it had the informal checks all the way to like performance project task it helped me reaffirm that not everything needs a formal assessment Mm -hmm. it can literally be a check-in and just observing them. Oh, I see them doing that. Mm-hmm. that They're doing it. A small exit ticket, something. Yes, something that can be tangible, that you can see, you can make a documentation. But I really want to take the time to be teaching more than I want to be assessing them, which assessing means a big part of being a teacher. But I want to actually focus on the goal to get them to that goal versus constantly being in that assessment mold. I'm assessing them every moment. How that would make them feel. Yeah. It's like if they're constantly being assessed and tested, I don't work well, like personally Mm -hmm. don't work well constantly being in stress mode. But doing things like this podcast for an assessment feels fun. It's more exciting and I feel very invested in it versus having just to type something up and submit it. I'm not invested in that. Yeah. But I'm invested in this conversation and the process to get to the goal, which is to get an A on the the grade for our assessment. Yeah, you're a passionate creator instead of just like a little machine over there popping out good answers and forgetting about it the next day. And you learn more through conversation and through these smaller things to get to that larger thing. But if you think about it, If you go through and you have a midterm and you have a final and you have no check-ins in between, how do you know that they're even going to understand what they need to know when they hit that midterm or that assessment? If you're not doing these small checks and also if they don't know, then you can go back and teach to the individual, Mm -hmm. which I'd love to say, oh, so I see this exit ticket. They didn't understand this. I need to go back and I either need to, however many people didn't understand it, maybe I need to teach this section again and switch it up and teach it differently because they didn't understand it the first time. This is telling you something and so that you're able to assess yourself as well. And that takes me back to the class. I won't name it because... It's a matter of professionalism. It's a matter of profession, correct. But this class, I didn't get any feedback. We got into week six, seven... And I still didn't receive any grades in this class. And this class didn't give me any feedback, so I didn't even know where I was growing as a student, as an individual. And does that make you want to continue doing something like that? If you're not getting getting any feedback, feedback, then how am I growing as a student? Because I'm gaining all these knowledges, but am I getting any check-in? Am I getting any... I'm not really actually getting assessed. Yep. But it could look easy as it looks great or, hey, this is where you can improve. Not necessarily have to be a grade attached to that, mm-hmm. but something, anything. Yes. And I think as a teacher, we need to be very mindful about creating that space for a growth mindset. We're creating a space where we can help guide the students along, but also giving them feedback as well. Mm-hmm. Giving them ways to improve upon it in a very positive manner. Or yeah. if you do get 100%. Telling them, and this is something that is said through all of our classes, Mm -hmm. it's not okay to just say good job. Correct. Mm -hmm. You should say, this is why I gave you this. And I think that that's something that if a student sees 
you did this really well. I thought that this point and the way that you explained this, what, however it may be, mm-hmm. a detailed explanation of what they did well means, oh, so if I did that well, I need to continue doing that. That's something that I should do on my next paper is explain it in a way that gets me to where I got this 100% versus the good job that's just okay, I did it, but you don't really know where it was extra great. That could just be our type A personalities that need that. But I really do think that children need that. This is why you're great. On both ends of the spectrum, this brings me back to the teaching metaphor that we Mm -hmm. just did for Ms. Masterson. I I did get 100%, but she helped me dig a little bit deeper about my understanding of what it meant for my teaching metaphor. Mm -hmm. She gave a very detailed explanation about how I did really well. But then she also still pondered some thoughts that I didn't even think about when approaching my metaphor. Definitely. And even though I did really well on it, I still was able to learn from that experience. And I think that's what we as teachers have to go into is learning, helping students learn from their experiences. Mm -hmm. Whether they succeed or fail or somewhere in the middle, we still need to provide that scaffolding to help them grow to that next that next goal and even their failing isn't failing no i don't like because, using the word failing right. but like mm-hmm. there's both ends of the spectrum right. yes. so grade wise if you quote unquote fail and you get the grade that is below that's where it's super important to be detailed in your explanation and and still foster that positivity where yes okay you didn't get the grade here's the reasons why but this is also something that you could expand on and mm-hmm. this could be an a paper i yes. really liked how you did this blank mm-hmm. do um, more of this this is great and this is where you're where did going to come shine from? in the next paper or come back. Focus on this. Mm-hmm. This is what I want you to focus on because this is great. How can you expand on that? I don't know if it's a skill or a curse that I have, but I can typically perform pretty well on traditional tests. But a lot of that is because I can cram the night before and regurgitate the information very, not very, very well, but to an extent. So I feel like... The example that comes to my mind is my pre-AP chem class. My knowledge in that class is probably a B average a lot of the time. But on performance, I could just regurgitate it. Ask me what it means the next day, I wouldn't know. But with projects in that class, I learned 10 times more because, like you guys said, the continuous feedback and pointed feedback was so much more helpful. And when you go through and you get you do these smaller things in between, that's where the learning is happening Mm -hmm. versus... The learning isn't happening when you're stressed and you have a time test. It can if you're a person who thrives on that type of testing, but I feel like most don't thrive on mm-hmm. you're going to be graded really harshly on this and it's a big deal and you have to cram because most people do cram the night before mm-hmm. because they feel like I don't know any of this information. Mm-hmm. Even if I study it, I'm going to forget it yeah. the next day. So what's the point? And by having all of these more in-depth and hands-on things going on throughout the year, my brain remembers through sound, sight, and touch Mm -hmm. those three senses I need in order to learn. So that's why I think that the testing is you're removing all sound. (laughs) It's it's eerily quiet Mm -hmm. and you are with yourself and your heart and you're that test and sometimes and you're and it's it's hard. And I know that there, there's the saying that, oh, I'm getting them ready for the state test. I'm getting them ready for the big test that we, ha- we by law, have to give, mm-hmm. which I do understand. There is a time, I guess there is a time and a place for it. 
but I wish we could take that away. Yeah. But because, how can we get them to that? That's with... the only time in life that they're ever going to experience us, those tests. In the real world, mm-hmm. there's I can't remember one test that we have to sit there and work by ourselves, extremely quiet for hours, to be able to pass. Because that's not how any life goes, or any, yeah. any working career is like. Yeah. You're not going to be up to those, you're not ever going to be presented with those challenges, unless you're taking a time test. I mean, I feel like maybe the stars or like driver's for, for um, daycare, yes. the 40 hours of stars mm-hmm. modules that you have to do. That's that's kind of like a test. But it didn't, to me, it didn't feel as much of a test as sitting at my desk with a bunch of people scribbling next to me mm-hmm. felt and, and waiting for that person to stand up and be done and me not being done yet. You know, there's yeah. that pressure. Mm-hmm. So how do we get it? to where we can utilize these backward designs to have a product that will actually foster that learning so that when they do get to the test, they can say, oh, I remember this Mm -hmm. because this was a lesson that helped me understand the information so that I could take it and utilize what I had learned from that because it's in that memory bank and put that into the test. And that's what I've loved about this program is we do so many more projects than we do tests. And I think I've learned a ton from it, and it also feels far more applicable. Like the annotated bibliography we did for Dr. Rafa's class, pretty sure, like 97% sure I'm going to utilize that in some way in my future classroom if I can. And it really helps us get crit- use that critical thinking yeah. aspect because just a test is not going not gonna to portray that. And it makes us proud of what we do mm-hmm. instead of just feeling defined by letters or numbers or whatever we have mm-hmm. something in front of us that we got to build and that we will, will we can use, use. Mm-hmm. we can literally print this out and be like this is my lesson plan how can i create that in the way that this school that i'm currently working at wants me to yeah and just like we did that community book mm-hmm. the last semester i know or during the summer like okay we, we can okay. Well, we those <laughs> It's so applicable to how we'll use it. Like, I'll be, if I teach in Vancouver, which I'm hoping to, I will be able to use that everywhere I go because mm-hmm. I made it such a all of Vancouver and in kind of Portland. Yeah. And I can use that in any school district I work at. I might have to change the, the schools that are in the packet, but mm-hmm. it's the outline and all the work is done. And you can highlight specific pieces and just print out that one page for that one student who needs it. Well, yeah, the resources page that mm-hmm. we did in that was... Inviolable. It's the difference between doing a test for a test and life application. Exactly. Yeah. Like for me, for that community project, I didn't know all the politicians in the area. I didn't know who mm-hmm. set the 10, 10 councils on the mm-hmm. Vancouver board. I had no idea. But mm-hmm. I now know. And I now know how to email them and contact them because I had to... I had to put in the work and I had to, I learned about it and now I'm able to now pass that on to the students. And you have a record of it now. Mm-hmm. As a visual person, I loved the graphics shown throughout this article. Which one stood out to you the most or was the most helpful? What did you learn from it? The visual that I really liked was figure 1.6, the big picture of a design approach. It really lays out the stages, like stage one, what is worthy and required of understanding, stage two, what is the evidence of understanding, and stage three, what's the learning experience teaching promote understanding, interest, and excellence. And then it goes into columns where it says that was one of the key questions, and then design considerations, filters, 
and what does the final design accomplish? And I really like how it laid it out for a way for we could think about each area and how to combine those from the standards to the ideas to how it's framed and then to take that to where you're wanting to go and how does it really encompass the children and really encompass what you really want to do. Yeah, I think that I went sort of the opposite way as far as how detailed it was. So I really liked the Venn diagram the most because I appreciated the simplicity of it and it made me just realize that I understand things better visually than in words. Just sort of a side note, the reading for that section was really wordy to me and chart heavy, mm-hmm. again, with more words. And I felt like I, I wasn't retaining as much information as I was when I had the visuals. And I know that's not specifically what you're asking, like how much I understood from the visuals, but I just feel like it needed to be said and back to the Venn diagram. Yes. So <laughs> it's meant to establish curricular priorities, which it did. It literally just gave me three things. Mm-hmm. And I was able to utilize the information that I already had in the brain bank to connect to those three things. So it helped me hone into that information to better understand which section was of the most importance. And then that tied into the stages of the backward design process, which was those identify the desired results, determine acceptable evidence, and then the plan learning experience and the instruction, which then tied, and I was tying from image to image to image. Mm -hmm. So then that tied to the continuum of assessment methods timeline, which I think is the one that you, you really liked. So you... You take it from here. Alrighty. So as I mentioned previously, my main misconception coming into this was that backward design would create too much of a focus on quizzes or tests. So I still had kind of that critical mindset as I read through this. And of course it slowly got debunked. But this continuum of assessment methods is where it got really clear to me what different assessments would look like and their almost value in backward design. Because quizzes slash tests is the third one on here out of six. And I felt like emotionally for a lot of students, quizzes and tests seem much more high stakes than that. So I like the idea of it being in the middle and seen as something that we just have to do to an extent. It's not something that's carrying a lot of weight and it's not something that students should find a sense of identity from, if that makes sense, or place their worth in it. And as mentioned previously, I think by Thomas, it also includes informal checks for understanding as well as observation and dialogue as two that are early on in the scale, but I also think are very important because we've learned that a lot of our lessons are based on adapting. And if we don't have the observation and dialogue or the informal check-ins and we just wait for the academic prompts or performance tasks, we might have been able to make things much more clear early on instead of suffering the repercussions of a poorly planned lesson later. I also really liked right underneath the continuum of assessment methods image, there was something called the misconception alert. And it says, mm, yes. when we speak of evidence of understanding, we are referring to evidence gathered through a variety of formal and informal assessments during a unit of study or a course. We are not alluding only to end of teaching tests or culminating performance tasks. Rather, the collected evidence we seek may well include observations and dialogues, traditional quizzes and tests, performance tasks and projects, as well as students' self-assessments gathered over time. And this is pretty much just completely tearing down the idea I had previously. And I thought it was really important to have that in there boxed and just really clear. What I really liked about that one is that there was the informal checks for understanding. If I kind of relate this back to the Venn diagram, Mm -hmm. it's more of like worth being familiar with. Mm -hmm. And then like it goes all the way to like the mid is quizzes and tests which I related to important to know and do. And then fully understanding is like the performance task and project Mm -hmm. because you have to dive so deep into it 
that you fully can actually understand what you're trying to research and do. And I really liked how it could be a continuum. And I, w- when I was thinking about it, I thought that the test and quiz would be all the way at the very end. Mm-hmm. But then taking that misconception and putting it in the middle, teachers sometimes stop at the quiz and test aspect mm-hmm. and we don't fully understand it. Like you were talking about earlier, how you would cram for a test. Mm-hmm. You can know and do, mm-hmm. but are you fully understanding it? And do I know and do it three years later? No. But I bet if you did a project based on it, you could probably regurgitate some of that information now Mm -hmm. versus just a quiz and a test that you would study really hard for and then pass and then poof, it's out of your brain. Oh, 100%. And I really liked how that really put it in my mind like, okay, this is what I really want to do. Yes, I'm going to be doing some of these things in the middle that feel a little yellow zone to me, but I really want to focus on projects like we're doing in our cohort and are doing, I don't, I don't know, I've picked everything, like ac- academic prom. That's also a really great mm-hmm. one that I didn't think of. And I really liked how it was just laid out perfectly. And I think I just, this just came to my mind, but I think this would work really well in a classroom where CLR is being used. Yes. Because observation and dialogue is used early on and can introduce things with kids who are very verbal or might not have the same academic language yet. And mm-hmm. it creates space for that to be applied and in a way that is validating, affirming, building, and bridging. Because the academic prompts at the end, at that point, you've had the time to teach them that academic knowledge and kind of teach them in a way that they're comfortable with and then ask them to apply it in a way that might be a little bit more uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also gives you that scaffold, especially if they're in ELL, mm-hmm. then you can, you're can you slowly building on that before you send them over. You don't want to throw them to the wolves yeah. and no. be like, test! Boom, yeah. hope you can re- read this. You want to slowly build that up. But think about it. It's not necessarily just English language learners. It's all learners mm-hmm. where you have to scaffold and you have to build. And you have to have them in that zone of proximal development in order for them to actually scaffold, which is what we were reading yes. before, that there are so many things that people think is scaffolding, but really there's only one. And mm-hmm. it only covers these certain things. And without scaffolding, you don't have the zone of proximal development and vice versa. They're synonymous. And I feel like all of these sort of help you hone in on that and actually make it so that you can build a lesson that way without having to think so hard. Mm -hmm. You know, they give you a layout of how to do it. And when you spoke about English language learners, we all know that all children are English language learners, but really focusing on the academic prompt, that doesn't have to be written. It could be Mm -hmm. a verbal academic prompt that they tell you one-on-one so that would take the stress of all the extra stuff with writing something that they could verbally tell you Mm -hmm. because maybe understanding is not actually regurgitating just information on a paper. It's actually taking your perspective and your critical thoughts and actually just verbalizing them. Yes. And so that that can take that one barrier that would be able to fully understand what that English language learner is knowing and understanding and actually can, you you as a teacher, fully gets a grasp of what they truly understand. And if they're not even verbal we could do visuals yes they could how does this mean to you and they can just bring me a slideshow of pictures Mm -hmm. and maybe that we can relate it a different way just or having pairing them with someone else that can help create that different modes that made me think of the project that Gisela had us do where this group is only going to do everything predominantly in writing and this group Mm -hmm. is going to do everything predominantly 
visually. And this group is going to do it like through acting, drama. And which one did you understand the most? Yeah. And actually, when we see all this writing, some of us just blank out. We check out. Mm -hmm. And when you see something visually, I could understand exactly what they were talking about with the visual and very little words. Granted, they were speaking the words, but when I was hearing the words and looking at the picture, I understood it much better than looking at the words and looking at and listening. And then when it came into the drama and the theatrical part of it, that also was something that was much easier to understand because you're literally modeling it right then and there. Mm -hmm. So this academic prompt, it doesn't have to be what you would think when you hear the word Word academic. And yeah. prompt. And prompt. <laughs> yeah. Like you're like a prompt, like I'm having to do a writing prompt for mm-hmm. a writing test and I have to write five paragraphs with five sentences in each. Let's just say an academic prompt doesn't have to be boring and doesn't have to be <laughs> scary. Yes. Yeah. It could None be fun them. and exciting and it could mm-hmm. be literally a skit and that would still fulfill the academic prompt. They could do a prompt. song. Yeah. Like, they could yes. do anything. Yes. I mean, ideally, none of this is scary, but we've mm, been students yeah. where it be- has became <laughs> scary. Or we were during a time where it was just teaching to the mm. test, and it yes. was literally test after test after mm. test. And we can now, as we are teachers, we can change that. Yes. Because we know that we didn't learn that well. So we how can build off of how what can they we learned adapt from, it? from things that did and did not work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that generational... Growth mindset. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to another Triple I episode. We hope that you are gaining insight not only into our thoughts, but into how the WSU Vancouver Elementary Education Program is broadening our minds as well as fostering hope for the future of education. Please share this with people you know who are or want to be in the education field, parents or guardians of children, and anyone you know who might want to learn or listen. We appreciate you all so much. Thank you for coming along with us on this academic journey. Click that follow button so you can join us next time for more ins and outs of education past, present, and future.